This is a public service announcement brought to you by Cardell Sims and the good folks of TMG Records. Check the forecast, I rain fact, that's truth precipitation. Give them time back or use it to build patience. Either or try to maneuver above basics. So when you touch down, you hover over complacent. Long story short, we made the time count. Incarceration couldn't keep our minds timed out. We just gave clout to the count times and grinded. Made our re-entry a journey out of confinement. What would be one word to All right, man, we are back with another episode of the Reentry Journey. I am your host, Cordell Sims. You know how the song says, we're going to make it. And tonight, our guests, i like to bring to the floor, share their story, share their journey and everything that they've been to, introduce to the Reentry Journey family in the Reentry Support Group. Our guest tonight, Dr. San Dr. Sandra Smith, welcome to the reentry journey. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Uh, thanks for coming on. So uh, tell us about yourself. Oh, well, well I am um, a native of Alabama. I was born and raised in Southeast Alabama. I went to school there, went to college there. Uh, I am currently um, a resident of Texas. I don't know how much you know, I'm Ale proud of that. Alabama, you, uh, you said start off Alabama. I, I just had to ask. You said Southeast, but I, I what? What's Abbeville. the coach? I always Abbeville. Abbeville. Mm -hmm. It's it's between Dothan and Eufaula, or Dothan and Montgomery. So it's like 45 okay. minutes south of Montgomery because people just, I always just say Southeast because yeah. Right. So yeah, yeah so, I lived in Montgomery before. I, wow, I, I lived okay. in Montgomery about uh. For about six to eight months. Awesome. Yeah, way, way, yeah. way, way back in time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's where I was born and raised. Um, and then eventually uh, work brought me here to Texas. And I've been here, ooh, um, 12 years. Yep. I've been in Texas 12 years. I've probably lived in every state on the East Coast at this point, basically just working. Um, and, you know, we'll, I guess, get to the incarceration part of that whole story. But right now I'm just working in the reentry field. Um, I'm a published author of my book, uh, which was about my journey to, uh, to incarceration before, during and after. So, um, yeah, that's just a little bit of an introduction wow. of where I come from and where I am, and then we'll fill in the middle. <laughs> with the, with the rest. So, so let's talk a little bit about where you come from. Mm -hmm. What was what was what was the upbringing like? I had the best upbringing that probably a child could have. Um, my, uh, I was a change of life child. So my mom was 45 when I was born. My dad mm. was 50 when I was born. Um, but I had five siblings, uh, 
one brother and four sisters. So there are six of us total. And um, just had a normal, I grew up on a really large farm in the backwoods of Alabama. <laughs> we were poor. We didn't know we were poor. Or I didn't know we were poor. Uh, because, you know, we we had the whole, again, farm, land, food, clothes, lots of love, lots of laughter. So I, I had, um, again, the youngest of, of six, I really had what some would consider an ideal childhood. Right. So there was, there's nothing abnormal about my childhood. Uh, my mother did die when I was 10. Um, and, it, and it that unbeknownst to me triggered a lot of, you know, where where my life kind of went left. But again, at 10 years old, you're not aware of, of that. So, um, but as a child, I had, uh, again, a lot of love, a lot of laughter and a lot of normalcy other than the fact that my mom died when I was 10. Right. And you just said that when your mom died, it would kind of veer off into you getting into some things later on. Was it yeah. feel like that, you know, I mean, I, I don't really understand the feeling, but what was it do you think that just what about that you think drove you to start getting involved to where you become incarcerated? So I, um, so what it was, was abandonment, but it was severe abandonment. But again, mm -hmm. I was incarcerated before I even knew that. And, and that happened in my forties. So I literally lived the first 30 wow. years of my life, you know, not knowing that I had experienced a trauma because, you know, as a normal people say, People die all the time. Parents die. It's not this really abnormal thing. But what happened to me is I internalized the fact mm -hmm. that my mom had died as abandonment. Didn't know it. I was not conscious of it. Um, and I didn't have, again, this, I wasn't hanging out with bad people. I graduated uh, close to top in my class. I was, you know, student body vice president. It just, you know, I graduated. I went to college. Um, I graduated from college. I went to work. I was, you know, this really, people thought, awesome uh, person. But inside, I felt like I had to please people. I became this people pleaser. Um, again, later on in life, I realized after having a lot of conversations that that really was about, you know, I have to do everything I can to keep you in my life. Like you can't mm -hmm. go away. You can't die. You have to love me. And all of that stemmed from my mother dying. And it's not mm -hmm. like she chose to, to die. Uh, but again, that just made me very conscious and is and it has helped me in the work that I do today, but it made me very conscious of how we talk to children and how we interact and what we explain back there in those days, you know, kids were seen and not heard. Right. I just, I remember the process, right? I remember I came home from school. My dad said to me and my sister, your mom got sick today. She's in the hospital. We're going to go see her. 
we went to the hospital. She was fine. She was alert. She had conversation. We got ready to go. Um, she said, be a good girl for your dad. Um, she said to my sister to take care of me, but I never heard that. So that's another one of those things that you find out 35, 40 years later. Right. Um, but, you know, go home, be a good girl. And I never saw her again. Um, she died that night. She had an aneurysm um, mm. again later on that night and, and she died. So the next day it was just there's there's all these people in my house and I'm like, what is happening? And nobody actually talked to me. Like it was just, my father cried, never seen my father cry before. So instinctively, you know, something's wrong. Oh, Why are all right. these people here? Why is my dad crying? But nobody ever had a conversation with me. And you know, something's wrong when you don't go to school. My household was, you go to school, like you're gonna go mm -hmm. to school, you're gonna get an education. And again, I just remember thinking, what is what is happening? Like, what is wrong? Um, eventually, it may have been the same day, uh, might have been the next day, I'm not 100% sure. But eventually I said to one of my cousins, <clears throat> you know, why can't I go to school? Like, what is going on? And where's, you know, am I gonna go get to see my mother again? And she just like, looked down at me and said, your mother's never coming back. Mm -hmm. Not your mother died. You know, my dad, right. you know, I, I don't know that he knew to have that conversation with me. So then it was just the process, right? The process of the people and the, the food and the arrangements. And, you know, I wasn't a part of the arrangements, but there was this, this huge conversation about was I, I was 10 years old, do I wear a white dress or a black dress? And and that's just, you know, that that's the only real memory of that. And then I remember being at the funeral and I saw her in the casket. And I remember trying to touch her face um, because I used to rub her face when I was little, mm -hmm. like when I would go to sleep, she had really soft cheeks. So I just remembered her cheeks were really soft. And I, I just, again, I think instinctively, it was like, oh, there's my mom. I reach out to touch her face and I and I couldn't. Like I I couldn't touch wow. it. Um, must have been two years later. I remember saying to my dad, uh, well, it's probably more than two because I just was like, so, um, did, did mommy have a, a, a glass casket? Cause you know how sometimes they have these caskets and it's glass from like the waist up. And he was like, yeah. he said, no, why are you asking that? And I said, cause, cause I remember trying to touch her face and I couldn't, like, I just, I was pushing and I was pushing and I couldn't touch her face. And he literally looked at me and he said, that was her she wouldn't allow you to touch her face. There was no glass. Mm. She didn't want you to feel her hard and cold. She wanted you oh, to remember wow. her face soft. So I was just like, ha, you know, it was just <laughs> like, I guess that makes sense. Like, I don't know. Um, but yeah, that, and that really, again, it was that planted something inside of me that made me really cling to people and, I had a false sense of what love meant 
I had a false sense of just the reality of life. It just, right. um, but I didn't know that. I, I had no idea that was my reality. And that was, you know, again, why now I, I am very specific about teaching trauma and making sure that people understand the effects of trauma because it literally changed the trajectory of my life. Um, and that's how I ended up incarcerated. I was working, um, I was working for an organization and I, um, somebody needed money for something. Honestly, I don't mm. even remember what it was and I didn't have it. And I didn't know how to say no, because again, I can't say no, I have to, have to do the thing. I, I was young. I didn't have kids. I wasn't married. I had really good job. So it felt like I was supposed to take care of the things. Um, right. And I didn't, and I didn't know how to say no. And I was in a position at the time where I embezzled money to, to take care of stuff. Then, then, and I always say when I'm doing speaking engagements, especially at schools, uh, and then I got greedy. So there's the piece where I felt pressure. Oh my God, I need to do this. I need to take care of it. And then it became easy. Then it was, uh -huh. oh, well, I did that. And then people always ask, well, didn't, didn't, you, didn't you think you were going to get caught? And I was like, well, if I thought I was going to get caught, I probably I wouldn't have done it. I mean, right. I'm just saying, I was like, no, I didn't yeah. think that because you get you get cocky, um, you get away mm. with it. You keep doing it. You get, you do you do it. You get away with it again. Um, so that that happened. It it actually happened twice. By the way, I did it at a job. Uh, I had money because I had embezzled money, but I also had a really good job. I paid a lawyer and and I got probation. And right. so and how did it make you feel? I did, but again, there was just this disconnect, right? It's almost like you, we talk a lot about privilege, privilege now with the whole um, diversity, inclusion, and equity stuff, and we talk about white privilege. But I, I was privileged. I obviously wasn't white, but I did. I had, I had a good job. I traveled. I did whatever, whatever I wanted to do, um, and had some really bizarre, unhealthy relationships and just, um, I felt like nothing was supposed to happen to me. That's how I felt. Mm. And so, and when, so when, when you got probation, did you feel like, uh, somewhat sense of, uh, I won or I was you feeling like, like you just didn't even got the probation? I mean, I, I did, honestly, I did not think about it. I thought about it as okay, it's taken care of. Like, mm. I I didn't sit there and think, oh, I think <laughs> I went to a court appearance. I got arrested. I had a lawyer. He got me out. I went home. He dealt with all the things. Uh, there was a court hearing. I went to the court hearing. They sentenced me. And I had um, restitution and probation. I went home. I was like, okay. Like I didn't sit that's there and care. Care. That's, 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 I'm laughing because that's the first time I ever heard that answer of okay, it's taken it's, care of. It's <laughs> I'm 
And that's the thing. Like, again, that's why I'm so passionate about this work. Cause, cause I somehow, and again, I guess it's more or less 30 years of denial is, is a lot. So Mm -hmm. you frame, you create this framework in your, in your mind of, you know, right from wrong. I a hundred percent, I knew right from wrong, but there was this place that I had created in me to convince myself because we can convince ourselves of a whole lot of stuff that is crazy. But I convinced myself I wasn't hurting anybody. So I convinced myself, oh, they have the money. Like it's not, I, I, I literally convinced myself I wasn't hurting anybody. And the truth, truth be told, the person I was hurting the most obviously was me. Um, And so, yeah, so that's the first time. And I just was like, okay, it's, it's done. It's taken care of. I moved to New York, got another really good job um, as a comptroller of all the jobs in the world. (laughs) The comptroller at the New York. Put you right over, put you right over the finance and. It's like now again, it's like duh. Um, but they didn't know they were they were, you know, basing it on again my work, my job, my experience, my background, my education, my experience, and they did no was, criminal background check or anything. I, apparently it didn't come up because uh-huh. I got hired. I was a com- right. the comptroller for the New York Botanical Garden of all the places oh, in the wow. world. Um and really just in hindsight, so, so horribly disappointing because I was the first black female comptroller, probably, I think the first black, forget female, but this is the first black comptroller ever. Um, so that made it a really big deal. I had this, uh, I had this burst of consciousness. I was only there, I think a year and a half. Um, and I was like, you know, this is crazy. I'm not going to keep doing this. Because I, I did exactly the same thing I did in North Carolina, in New York. Because mm-hmm. I had it down to a science. It's, you right. know, I, I had, it also was a, was a learning experience for accounting departments that you don't give anybody that kind of control. Because I could enter invoices. I could write checks. I had... Um, I wasn't signing them, but I had the, uh, what do you call it? The signature of the, of the, um, the VP. So I literally yeah. could put in, put in a payee, print a check, approve a check, sign a check. I mean, yeah, I'm pretty sure the world has figured out that internal controls should really work differently. Um, right. but at the time that was, I could, and I did. Um, and so I, again, I resigned, I went home. Uh, got a nice little piece of water for Crystal as my going away gift. Uh, and I was like, I can't, I'm not going to do that. Like, that's just, I'm not going to do that anymore. A year and a half. It's about a year and a half. It was 2002. I um, had gotten another job. I was working. I had asked for forgiveness from God. And I was like, all right, I'm good. <laughs> uh, a little over a year later. That sounded good, didn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, it made it made perfect sense in my head. Uh, but at at, <laughs> at I, 2002, I had actually gone on a trip with my family to Rome. I had a niece in in school in in Italy, and we went to visit. I came home. 
the day after um, my doorbell rang and there's there's this man standing there and he he was he's what he said was are you sandra smith um are you alone and do you have pets like do you have dogs or whatever and so this is in raleigh north um clayton north carolina which is right outside of raleigh again really nice areas kind of out in the woods uh and i just looked at him and i was just like like who are you most people are like why would you open the door but I'd, wow. I mean that again. I was just like, who are you? Um, and he took out his badge because he was plain, plain clothes um, officer. He took out his badge and he said, I'm from um, Johnson County Police Department. I need you to get dressed and come with me. And I was like, come with you for what? And he said, did you ever live in New York? Oh. And I was like, Oh damn! <laughs> that was—I mean—that was literally my thought. It was like, well, damn. Um, and so I looked at him. I said, "Yes." He let me close the door. I mean, I could have run out the back. I, whatever. I, again, my brain just wasn't wired to the. I convinced myself I wasn't a criminal. How about that? Exactly. So I wasn't wired to like run into the, the the backwoods of North Carolina and be chased by the cop. Like, no, I went, I got dressed. He was really nice. He said, um, <laughs> if you know, if you know a lawyer or whatever, now would be the time to call them. Um, I had a cell phone. He didn't take my cell phone. He let me sit in the front seat of the police car. He did not handcuff me. Uh, once I got outside, I realized there was another cop, there was another, um, not like another um, uh, investigator plain, officer, plain whatever, officer. another, yeah. So it was another car, another officer. Um, he basically just nodded. I guess that was, it's fine, go away. So that cop left, I got in the car. I actually had been working on uh, a uh, political campaign for a judge and oh, she wow. happened to be my sorority sister. And I couldn't remember her number. I was just like, Addie, Addie, Addie. Her name was Addie. Um, I was like, Addie, oh my God, let me call Addie. I couldn't remember her number because I'm shaking. I'm scared, like all the things because, because you know, the chickens it, had it come got, up to it, it got real. It got real, it got real, real fast. <laughs> um, but there was a lady that at the church that I went to and I was like, I know she'll know because she's she's the reason that I was working on the campaign. Anywho, um, got in touch with Addie. Thank God it was a pretty long drive to Johnson, Johnson County Jail. Um, and she said, don't panic, which I now know when somebody says don't panic that you probably <laughs> need to panic. Yeah, but, need to panic. Uh, they start out said, like that, you know, they, uh oh. She said, "Ask the ask the cop who the who the uh, magistrate is on duty. Who's the magistrate on duty?" He told her, and she was like, "Just you know, just we're gonna we're, it's gonna be fine. I'll take care of it." We get to the jail, and he said, "Okay, I'm gonna have to handcuff you now." Uh, honest to God, I don't remember a lot. <laughs> it's just I don't remember a lot from that point. I just remember lots of tears, 
I remember orange jumpsuit. I remember being in a cell and I literally think I cried the entire night. Um, Cause the mm. next, next thing I remember they were calling, they were like Smith and I went in, they had arranged bail and I, I was released. Um, right. But I didn't know. So there was a, so there was a warrant for my arrest obviously from the botanical garden but there was also a uh, extradition because because oh. an extradition warrant okay you're right uh i waived my extradition and and i voluntarily went back to new york because again i, I mean i mean from they from them transporting you to new york they, they didn't that's what i'm saying i got you out. went back to new york I waived extradition what? and volunteered, paid for my flight to go back to New York because in my brain, should give you some indication of how my brain used to work. In my brain, I got away with it the first time. I'm going to get away with it the second time. We had a lawyer. The lawyer I'm just, was... I'm just going to get this taken care of. Again. Yeah, no, that wasn't that, that I had a friend that was like, no, I'm going to go to New York with you because we thought we're going to go early. I'm going to make an appearance again, bless my heart. As my grandmother would say, I was like, oh, and we'll be home in time for dinner. Like this is <laughs> right. never saw home again. I never, yeah, I never saw that mm. house again. I never. I, you know, the lawyer showed up. She was interesting. I'll just say that about her. Um, again, there was just, I, I remember at one point, cause I was at the Bronx, um, the Bronx Borough, uh, it was like the federal um, building? Yeah, well, it's not Bronx, a federal building, uh, but the big, the, the Superior, Superior Court uh, of New York, mm. but it was in the Bronx um, complex, the building. And so, you know, they're big and they're old buildings. And I was just, I remember being handcuffed to a radiator. Um, it wasn't hot because it was the, it was the summer. It was, you know, it was yeah. April. Um, well, it was probably May by the time I ended, got, got that whole process through. But anyway, um, finally got to the judge. It was like four or five o'clock in the afternoon before I saw the judge. Uh, the word, it was a huge room. There was nobody in the room, but us, there was one person in the back of the room. I didn't know who it was. It was a, it was a white guy sitting in the back of the room. Uh, go before the judge. I remember somebody yelling, hurry, hurry up. The Buster Rikers is leaving soon. And oh. I just remember going, Rikers Island? Like, are we... <laughs> Right. I talk about getting real. Um, no, you ain't talking about Rikers Island. Wait a minute. Hold I, up. No, we like what has just happened here. My girlfriend is in the courtroom. I look at her. She looks at me, and I was just like, I don't. Mm. Wow. Um, they sentenced me. They didn't sentence me. They based well. Yeah, they did. They said uh they set my bail at 750 750,000 yeah so yeah that I wasn't going home so yeah they, uh, they, they did that to make sure that you ain't going home they made yep and because a lot of it was because the extradition um 
warrant, but also just, I'm sure by then they already knew that I had a prior conviction. So that was, yeah. you know, um, so anywho, I looked at her, she looked at me, I started crying. She was just like, oh my God, what do I do? I was like, go home. I was like, leave my purse and go home. Like, I don't know. I don't know. We had no plans. We had no nothing. Cause our plan was we got a flight leaving tonight. Um, so I told her to go home. Don't miss your flight, figure it out. I got on a bus. I remember it like hyperventilating. Cause I was just thinking about in the movies where there's some movie right. where there's a bus that drives off the bridge and you're like handcuffed in the, you know, they actually weld the little sails into yeah. the buses. Oh yeah. And I'm and I'm claustrophobic. So I'm like, I'm also I'm gonna die either in here or as the bus drives off into the water. So again, my and brain was just you can't get out. <laughs> but I'm gonna tell you right now, you're not the only one that has their thoughts in the back in them little cells. <laughs> Well, if this bus crashes or anything, it's a wrap. I can't it's a wrap because you're handcuffed and you're in there, in there. And, in there. and Rikers is literally an island. So you got to drive over that bridge to get to Rikers Island. Mm. Um, so that was, yeah, I mean, that was just the beginning of that whole nightmare. Um, yeah. So wow. Um, I was at Rikers six months. I was at Rikers six months. Um, we kept going back and forth with me trying to get bail, trying to raise it. They wouldn't allow me to use my house because because I had an embezzlement charge, which yeah. was tied to money and probably property in their mind. So it was like, no, you can't use anything you own. So then I'm going back and forth with my family in Alabama to try to get them to put the house and the land and then at some point i don't know i woke up and i was like i just sentence me like i this is, <laughs> right. this is crazy i'm just about uh, to say how, going through that back and forth like you're going through this you're trying to get the bill you can't they won't let you use your house so you're trying to get your family and i'm like no nah, we no nah, i don't know yeah. about that I, they yeah what so there were they were split you know there was there was you know um I would say, I wouldn't even say split. Most of them were, yeah, they're like, yeah, no, this this is crazy. What are you thinking? What were you thinking? Mind you, they didn't know about the first mm. incident. Oh, so they, they, thought, they, they found out really about it all once it came to the second incident and started going to court. And, start going to court. <laughs> and, and you know how they found out? Because it was on the front page of the New Yorker and it was also on the it was in two newspapers. The guy in the back of the court that I didn't know who he was, mm -hmm. he was a reporter. Oh, uh, yeah, he back there getting all the information. And uh, got to Rikers, woke up, and actually it was a, a um, what do you call it? It was a uh, officer. I was going somewhere because they, you know, they were like, you're allowed to talk to the chaplain, whatever, whatever, because you're from out of state. We'll see if she can help you. I also had family in New York, but I was going to see the chaplain and the officer literally had the newspaper in her hand, turned it around. And she was like, is this you? Mm. And I was just like, oh, <laughs> 
My God. Made it, made, made it big time now. <laughs> and not in a good way. So That's not a good thing. That's not a, at all a good thing. Um, so yeah, that was the beginning of that. Um, I finally eventually got another lawyer. Um, I was actually dating a guy that was a bodyguard for a, a famous person. Um, and he had a lawyer that had represented like some rappers and drug dealers. Again, this is mm -hmm. just the most hilarious choices. It's all written in my book, choices. Um, but uh, he was awesome and he, but he didn't work in the Bronx. He actually worked in Brooklyn. And the for some reason, the judge just really didn't like him. I guess he was arrogant. He was black. He was whatever. Uh, they just, they, he and the ADA just didn't get along. Um, mm. Or not the judge, the ADA rather. Um, so anywho, I ended up getting three to six. Wait a minute. I should know that. It started at three to six. I ended up with two and a half to six. Um, mm. And I was just like, I don't care. Just take it. I need to get it started. I, I you know. There's all this other stuff happening. The house is going to go. Because by now, it's been six months at Rikers. So by now, my house is going into foreclosure. Like, all the things are happening. Um, I did have a friend. It's always good to have one criminal. Like, because I had a friend that had a friend that broke into my house and took my belongings out. So I was losing the house, but I had my belongings. Right. They put it in the storage you really can't make this up. I mean, I like, I lived it and every time I tell it, I'm just like, that's insane. Um, hey, you gotta get yeah. stuff somehow, some way, you know. I look, I was a lot like, of sentiment of value and stuff in there. There is a there is a lot of stuff in there. Um, but yeah, they broke in, they got my stuff out. Uh, and I got sentenced to two and a half. I went to every jail, every jail every state prison for females in New York state because they didn't know, they just kind of kept shifting me. They mm -hmm. were like, you're the worst criminal. Like you're educated, like you're, you're stupid. Like, why are you here? What were you think? Like all the things. Um, they sentenced me to shock, which is, uh, it's like a, a boot camp type of early release place. So that's all the way um, up at close to the border in New York. It's called Albion Prison. And I got up there, spent a, probably a week. And they were like, you have to pack up and go back downstate. And I'm like, why? And they were like, literally, I think I still have the paperwork somewhere. It literally said, due to the nature and sophistication of your crime, you're disqualified from shock. Oh, wow. And that, well, and that'll get you released early. That was the point. I didn't right. I was like, yeah, I think it was, it was, it was actually like a six month program too. I'm on mm. bus. I'm on my way back down uh, to this, to, to, um, I don't even remember the second one. It was actually the third one, but anyhow, who's counting? Um, I went back and then about three months after that, they were like, I went to this counselor and the counselor was like, uh, 
have you ever done drugs? And I was like, nope. She was like, are you sure? And I was like, I, I'm sure. I think I would remember if I had ever done drugs. Right. She literally leaned over the desk and said, have you ever like smoked a joint? I see you went to college. Everybody smokes marijuana in college. And it finally clicked. You need right, to say yes. Time, yeah, you need to say yes. And I was like, yes, I smoked marijuana. She was like, great. You're going to, you're going to KSAT. KSAT is Comprehensive Alcohol and Substance Abuse Treatment, right. uh, which again was a six month program. But at this point, I'm what, eight, nine months in. Um, uh -huh. So again, fast forward, I completed that. I got work release. I had, um, so there was a total of 18 months and I had uh, an apartment and a job waiting for me at uh, Mega Evers College in Brooklyn when I got and, out. And when you was on work release, was you, did you get paid? Um, what was your wages like? Was they regularly? On work, well, on work release, it was regular because what they did in this, after you completed that like alcohol and substance abuse program, which mm -hmm. by the way, is where I really found out what a lot of my issues were, right. um, that it brought it to a conscious level by talking through it and, and going, oh damn, like you have to know what you're talking about. Um, but so what happens when you complete that program, you literally go to, um, you go to a, 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 a house it's like a halfway house and yeah. you go to work. Like you go to work during oh, yeah. the day, you come back at night. It's not, there's no bars. It's, it's, it's a treatment. It's further treatment. Um, you have counselors that are there and uh, they're like, when you arrive, it's like the house, uh, the executive director of the house was like, you have to, you know, take them out of those clothes so it was a it was a house. They had um, partnerships mm -hmm. with people to get clothes or whatever, um, and and again, that word privilege kind of creeps up because I had friends and I had family that literally had arranged for me to have an apartment and a house once I completed the work release. So mm -hmm. the first day that I got to go out and look for a job, I came back with one because I already had a job. Um, right. But the so way had no and, issues uh, for getting no job because you already had one. Yeah, they had arranged for me to get a job. The counselors, what they do is they they know how much you you make because you have to give them your pay stuff. Yeah. You have to put X amount into savings, and then they'll let you spend X amount. So, um, again, I ended up helping people at the house. I would help people do resumes because I knew how to use a computer and all that stuff. And then I started working at Megger and then I finished the work release and I moved into an apartment and I was there for the next eight years at, at Megger Evers. So, mm. yeah. Right. And so you said in that program is that where you, is where you learned to about a lot of the things that you were dealing with. Mm -hmm. what, what were some of them things? That was where I understood that I was diff I was suffering. I don't want to say suffering from, but I was experiencing severe trauma. Um, it's where I understood, you know, the whole thing about my mother dying for me 
personally was a traumatic experience. And then I internalized all that and it manifested itself in, like I said, being a people pleaser and, and again, clinging to people and, and wanting to buy them stuff and do stuff. And um, it was a great time to know me because if you, mm-hmm. if you needed something, it was like, oh, you need a bedroom set? Okay, you know, whatever it was, because in my mind, if I don't please you or if I don't do what you ask or what you need, then you're going to leave. And when you are suffering from severe abandonment issues, that's like the trigger. The trigger is, oh, my God, you left. Oh, my God, you're not there. I did something wrong. I didn't do what I should have done. Not again, you're not connecting the pieces that your mother never abandoned you. Mm. And so the counseling, the conversations at at um, at the house with the counselors, and and even in the programming, you know, stuff just started to click, and you start to think about your behavior, and you start to think about relationships, and you're like, "Damn, she's right!" <laughs> like, wow. So you believe that your, um, you you believe that the you thinking your mother abandoned you led to a lot of codependency? Oh heck yeah. Oh, absolutely. Like every, every relationship, um, you know, male, you know, relationship, romantic relationship, it was, it were, it was people that it wasn't, it wasn't abusive. Again, I was never abused. I never allowed abuse in my, to me, but it was mentally abusive, um, Mm. which sometimes psychological abuse is, is just as devastating or worse. I mean, I think they're all like horrible and and not acceptable, but you know, when people can mess with your mind and your thought processes, that that's not okay. And, and it's particularly hard when you're young, because I was in a relationship at 23 with a a 49 year old pastor. And because, because I, because I told him, you know, I'm telling him, you know, my past, he knew, he knew, he, you know, he knew my vulnerability and he took advantage Mm -hmm. of it. So, you know, pastors and not all, because there is no one size fit all, but I'm very, I, I do not like most pastors. Like I'm extremely just, um, I don't trust. I still have very, very bad trust issues because I'm like, yeah, you're lying. Like, <laughs> you know, um, and then there are people that are like, well, you were 23. You should have known better. And I'm like, I should have. You're right. But I did it. And I didn't. I didn't know any better. Um, again, it just creates that passion for the work that I do now, because on the so- other side of it, you see how pretty crazy that <laughs> was and you're like why why you know but now i know to ask people what happened to you not why did you do that not what were you thinking what's wrong with you it's it's what happened to you and there's always a story they may not even remember it at the time you know our brain protects us from from trauma until we're at a point where it thinks that we can accept it. 
So a lot of people don't even know the abuse, the real abuse, like rape and all the things, hideous things that have happened to people. Sometimes it's buried and they don't even know how to process that or have safe places to have those conversations. So let's talk about the work that you do now. Let's tell us about the work that you do now. Yeah. So now I am uh, what's called a peer programs manager, uh, peer support. It's a, it's a thing. It's a, you know, people have been doing peer support, which is basically people helping people based on their lived experience forever. But there is something um, in the country called formalized peer support where there's certifications, there's trainings, there's continuing educations. Um, it's people make it akin to counselors, but there's no licensure. There's a certification um, attached to it. It's in 40 three of the 50 states and it's a there's a huge uh in texas there's a huge network of peer specialists and what i do is i'm responsible for training those people the certification training uh making sure that they get their continuing education working with texas workforce commission to try to make sure people can get employed and keep employment um and i actually had the opportunity to create the first re-entry peer specialist certification um, in this state of Texas, and it's only one of three in the country. Um, and ours, you know, I, I, I like to take bragging rights. Ours was created out of trauma and, and my personal understanding of trauma. So we had professional curriculum writers and I served as a, um, I served as the, uh, expert, uh, the subject matter expert for how to develop it and what needed to be in there. But, but trauma was, it's actually two and a half days of the eight day training. It focused specifically on trauma and getting people to really understand. And again, creating safe environments for people to talk about that with other people that have that experience. So it's like, oh, wow, I didn't, I thought I was the only one. I was, I thought I was the only person whose father started raping him at five or stepfather, you know, did these crazy things to me. I thought I was the only person. And so internalizing all that stuff, just it's heavy, first of all, but it also just creates this, this, this person that is not free and that doesn't even understand that what they think they did, somebody did to them. Uh, me, Again, nobody did anything to me. I internal all, internalized all of that and created it in my head by myself. Um, but, it, but I understand it now and I understand the why. So once you can understand the why, you can start the healing process. So my work is really just about certification training and um, healing from trauma, from whatever that is. Um, we provide substance use, mental health, and now um, the reentry training that we were able to to um, to have it become an actual certification. Okay, and is that certification is, is, they can take it when they get out? They have to take it when they get out. We, we're I'm trying to partner with a lot of people to create a lot of programming uh, to take it inside. They can't obviously get their certification in most cases until they're out, but um, we did a lot of the programming up in Dallas at Lou Sterrett Jail. And that really was around my book because I took my book, 
which is a, which again is my kind of like my life story through the whole process of incarceration. But we were able to make it into a workbook so that I could go in to the jail. I think I went in twice a week and we really just talked about each chapter of the book. So we turned it into a workbook so they could actually, so we had questions for every chapter and they would write about it. And then I would go in and we would just have conversations about what was it in that chapter of my book that you can relate to. Um, and it turned into a 16 week series that just allowed um, this particular was a male prison and it allowed the guys to really just have some conversations. Um, you know, one of the guys was like, oh my God, I now know how to help my daughter deal with my incarceration because there's probably a part of her that feels abandoned by me. And I was like, yes, like that was, right. that was pretty, that was pretty exciting. So I was like, yes, you get it. You got it. So that's pretty okay. cool. And can, let's say like somebody commented that's watching, they said they're interested in this program. Uh, I think uh, it might be a Linda. So yeah, it's Alinda. Linda. Linda says she's interested in a program. So how can someone who's interested in in becoming the uh, getting certified as a peer specialist, specialist how can mm -hmm. they go about doing that? They can email me. They can go to the website. I I currently work for the Mental Health Resource of Texas DBA Via Hope. So if they go to viahope.org, v-i-a-h-o-p-e.org, um, just go to our website. You can. Um, it says what we do. There's a whole, you know, about, I think there's four or five pages starts with a video of me talking about uh, my experience and trauma. And um, so viahope.org, what we do, and my email address is there as well. Like you can just go contact us. There's a picture of me. You click on the link and it will, it will bring up my um, email address, which is sandra.smith at viahope.org. So we can um, we can get people some information. There are people from other states that have taken it. Right now, it's just a Texas certification, but people take it because they want the content. They don't mm -hmm. necessarily care about being certified. We are working on a national certification as well, but um, it's a it's only two years old. the The reentry certification is only two years old. The mental health and substance use that all of that. Um, is uh, as old as Via Hope, which is 12 years old. So, oh. mm. yeah. And uh, okay, so they got the uh, I, I typed the um, the uh, website in the comments, so they got the website. So mm -hmm. they said they got that, and then she also said, Is your book on Amazon? Yeah, it is Choices by Dr. Sandra Smith. So, yeah, if you just go to Amazon and put Choices and doc by Dr. Sandra Smith it should pop right up. So the book and the workbook are on uh, Amazon. It's on Barnes and Nobles too, I think still, yeah. All right. And so my final question, I ask, I ask all my guests this same question. If you had one word to describe this journey, what would that one word be and why? Continuous. Hmm. Because it's continuous. Because it's it's a never it's a you it doesn't end. <laughs> it, <laughs> it, it until I die, I will be traveling the journey. I will be stigmatized. Um, all the things that happen to people that have been incarcerated, 
So the journey doesn't end. It's, it's well, perpetual probably would have been better, <laughs> but it's continuous, you know, it just, it, it, but for me, again, I've just been so blessed um, and so fortunate to have the people network, your, your family, your network. It's so important. Um, and I've just been tremendously blessed to be able to push past and now be able to give back. Um, I go to Ohio. I think we mentioned something about Ohio earlier. I think the video, I go to Mansfield prison, uh, Great Lakes with a, with a group from New York. I traveled well until COVID we traveled up there a couple of times a year to do uh, prison ministry with his group. Um, so it's, it's just important to me now to just give back and create as much as I can to support people through this, through this journey, through this process. Mm. Great. So once again, let the people know um, the website and the name of the book, where they can get it. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, the website where I work is uh, viahope.org, V-I-A-H-O-P-E.org. You can uh, go to my personal website because I do do consulting and speeches, and that's just Dr. Sandra, D-R-S-A-N, I forgot how to spell my name, D-R-S-A-N-D-R-A dot me, M-E. So drsandra.me is my personal email. You can always shoot me an email there. I mean, my personal website, you can email me through that or you can email me through viahope.org. The book is Choices by Dr. Sandra Smith and that is on amazon.com. Mm. And there you have it. Tonight, we had an amazing guest. So we appreciate you coming on, sharing your journey. Um, I, I, I learned a few things uh, <laughs> from the different aspect. <laughs> I really like the uh, when you said uh, that when you was in court. Oh, I got I, okay. That's the taken care of and out of the way. <laughs> yeah, was, I mean, again, very, I just, that was a very it's, interesting it's perspective. <laughs> sounds it's and again, I'm not. I am probably now the most honest person you will ever meet. I I, I tell it like it is. People at work, my employees will be like, don't ask her if you don't know the truth. But that is the truth. I mean, I had a lot of time to think about it. Uh, and I've had, you know, a lot of people ask me questions, again, about what were you thinking? What were you doing? You know better, blah, blah, blah. You were raised so much better, all the things. Um, and I, that's just what I thought. I thought, okay, right, done. <laughs> Next. And then I, I thought it. It, I thought it was going to be done again. And like I said, we we all know how that turned out. So <laughs> <laughs> it, took, it turned into a continuous journey. <laughs> it turned into a journey within a journey for Ooh. sure. No doubt. So thank you for coming on to our podcast. We really appreciate you uh, taking the time out to share your story and also joining our Facebook group. Um, you feel free to communicate in the Facebook group. We do a lot of networking within the group. Uh, anytime you want to go in there, share your website, share your book, share your information awesome. and your knowledge. Uh, we'll really be appreciative of that. I will do that. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. You have a great night. Take care. You too. You too. Bye. Bye-bye.